6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 1 Timothy, chapters 5 and 6. What's our yearning? Praise of men. What's God's thing? Approval of God is the yearning we should be having. Are we seeking man's approval or God's approval? What's our aspiration? To be served. What's God's way? To serve others. You notice that there's just an antithetical perspective here? What's man's need? To push ahead. What's God's way? For patience. Perseverance. What's our striving? To lead men. What's God striving? To follow God. See, the perspective is a little different all the way through. What's our interest? Competition. What's God's way? Cooperation. A little different perspective of everything, not just dollars. Motivation? Ours is self-glorification. God's motivation is God's glory, of course, first, last, and always. What are God's purposes of money? A little different. Provision, direction, fellowship, and demonstration. Four main categories. We'll look at each one a little bit here. Provision, direction, fellowship, and demonstration. Provision, to provide basic needs. Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount. Establish daily dependence on Him. To deepen our love for the Lord. To develop a spirit of gratefulness. That's what God's purpose of money is. To establish our dependence on Him. To deepen our love for Him. To develop a spirit of great gratefulness. And to teach us to live within our means. Borrowing is a means of reaching around the limitations God has put upon us. And God's purpose of money is to help us enjoy our possessions. Interesting enough, Hebrews 13.5. Each one of these you can study. They'll be in the notes. Another purpose is to confirm. God uses money to confirm his direction of our lives. To build our faith and vision. To determine who is the Lord of our life. To protect us from harmful items. To teach us patience. God put me in the ministry by driving me through a bankruptcy. I had signed an $8 billion, that's with a B, billion-dollar joint venture with the Soviet Union. It all collapsed. I went through personal bankruptcy. I had a public company that I owned 51% of that I was trying to, I was stupid enough, aggressive enough to try to protect. God used all of that to get my attention, to redirect my life from the career that I thought I had been pursuing for 30 years, to focus on a hobby that I had for those same 30 years, and, and to do, put me where he wanted me, which I'm convinced he's called me to do what I'm doing. To concentrate on true riches. Third thing, to give to Christians. We want to get, the uh, purpose of money is to, to unite Christians, to demonstrate the mark of a Christian, to initiate spontaneous thanksgiving, and to multiply the potential for giving. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. And the last thing is to demonstrate God's power. God will use money to cause Christians to trust him. That's one reason he never gives us more than we need. He gives us what we need, but usually very little. Sometimes a check will arrive almost to the penny of exactly the, the need we suddenly have. 
You've seen, that happens so often, you all are serious about that. that. That's God's way of causing us to get, take care of the situation, but in a way that will still trust him. He also uses money to mock the false gods of our age. Also uses it to purify our lives and motives and to bring non-Christians into salvation if we do it effectively. And of course, all of this to glorify God. That gives, brings, of course, to the topic of tithing. God has a direct challenge in Malachi 3, verses 8 and 10. And I want you to notice this was instituted before the law. Well, tithing is just Old Testament stuff, no. It occurs in Genesis 14. The law wasn't given until, Genesis 20, until Exodus 20. Four reasons for tithing. It acknowledges the Creator's rights. The tenth of all is His. It is an antidote for greed and covetousness. It will change your life if you commit to it. It is a test of our faith. God challenges you. He dares you to put Him to the test. Even Jesus quotes the Scripture that it is not you not to test God. There's one exception. God makes one exception where you are to put Him to the test in the tithes and offerings in Malachi 3.10. Very strange for God to put Himself in a box, but He does. See if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing so there will not be room enough to receive it. That's his challenge. And of course, it becomes the solution to every financial need. It's tithing. Make God your partner. It's the Old Testament pattern. We can go through all of that if you like. New Testament is confirmed. Christ does not set aside tithes. It's implied in the even so of 1 Corinthians 9. Lay by him in store, 1 Corinthians 16. It alludes to all those other passages. It is more binding on us than the Old Testament saint. You know why? Because our privileges are greater. Whomsoever much is given of him, much shall be required. So the, the, it's even more binding than the Old Testament. A tenth is, everything is his. What does that mean? You need to be strict. You need to keep books. You need to be careful and be systematic. You want to do all three. You want to be strict, careful, and systematic. You want to separate funds upon arrival and set those aside for his work. The tenth of it. And keep records because your giving only comes after you've returned his tenth. Well, I give a lot. Well, wait a minute. What is your tenth and how much have you really offered? Your offering is only beyond that which is beyond the tenth. One of the things that you might be familiar with as a businessman or a portfolio manager is what I call the portfolio management concept. Norm, if you're a steward of somebody else's materials, you operate from period to period, quarter to quarter, year to year, whatever, and at the end of each period, you have a report, how well you did. And what you try to do during that period is to arrange your affairs to get the best possible report at the end of the period. You're trying to manage a portfolio. You want it to look as good as you can at the end of the period. You judge the period, your actions of the period by what was the results at the end, right? You do the same thing with giving. Same thing with giving. What I call the portfolio management concept of giving. A professional manager attempts to minimize their maximum regret. That's the savage principle of decision theory. Uh, the main idea is you make your decisions in light of the ultimate review at the end of the reporting period. What you want to do at the end of the period is be glad you did whatever you did, you do, whatever you did, right? You may not have lost as much as you might have. You might have lost less than all your competitors, but that's good. You follow me? It's always relative. How did you do uh, in the period? Well, if you're, if, you're, if you're on a board of a, of a uh, illumationary society, someone, you know, a charity that's of giving, you don't give money simply because there's a need. There's more need around than you can possibly deal with. 
That's not a meaningful criteria. What you want to do is you want to look for evidence that God is in the action. And then you join him in what he is doing. Why? Because at the end of the period, what you want to do is look back and see that your monies went where God was moving and not just where they had the most plaintive need. You follow me? Because you, first of all, what you can do is maybe may be a very modest difference in the first place. What you want to be able to do is invest with God. I'm convinced there's ministries around that God would like to shut down if the supporters would let him, you know? So you can take it with you. The way you take it with you is to ship it on ahead. If you were suddenly going to visit Algeria next month, well, where are you going to get Algerian dinar? You're not going to, you're not going to wait until you get to the country. You're going to go to a bank and get some dinar from some international bank that deals with that to get whatever, a few hundred dollars, whatever, of dinar, Algerian dinar, because it's illegal to have outside the country, unless it's an international bank. If you go to Israel, well, Israel will take dollars, but and, and many, and most of us tra traveling Americans don't have problems because dollars have been the international currency up till now, and no longer they're losing that status. But the point is, if you're going to go to a country, you generally convert your whatevers to that country before you go. Well, same thing you do here. You can't take it with you. You've got to just send it up ahead. Make your arrangements before you go. You send it. So anyway. Verse 11. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. But thou, see, he's contrasting him with these false teachers he's been talking about for a couple of chapters. He calls him a man of God. Now, Timothy was in good company. Who else is a man of God? Moses was called that in Deuteronomy 33. Samuel, 1 Samuel 9. Elijah, David. These are pretty... This is a pretty august company for Paul to put Timothy in, right? Joseph was called that, even though he's tempted by another man's wife. David, when Saul tried to kill him, we're all men of God. What a, that's a, that's a non-trivial title. And grace of the Spirit. Righteousness refers to personal integrity. And that's, the, that's probably a key thought, because we speak of righteousness, that's sort of an abstract concept. When we speak of personal integrity, that's a little more piercing. Godliness refers to practical piety, practical piety. See, the first thing has to do with character, the second with conduct. Righteousness is character, godliness is conduct. Faith is faithfulness or dependability. Love, of course, is the word agape, which is a verb made into a noun, and sacrifices for others, to give and not to gain. Patience that we use there really means perseverance. When the, tough, when the going gets tough, the tough get going kind of thing. Meekness, power under control. That's pretty straightforward stuff. We have to cultivate these graces of the Spirit in our lives, or else we will be known only for what we oppose rather than for what we, for what we propose. Many people are so against everything, you have no idea what they're for. Not all unity is good, and not all division is bad. Jude writes his epistle to contend for the faith. The current... Spirit of the times is to you know, check your beliefs at the door. We're all going to get along, no matter what you believe. Really? Not me. Fight the good fight. Here again, Paul uses these athletic terms. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. The word fight is agony, which is the word from which we get the word agony. Struggle. Straining to win, no pain, no gain. You know the story. Paul, at the end of his life, was able to say in 
Second Timothy, I have fought the good fight. Boy, wouldn't we like to be able to say that? But not between believers. Let's not forget who the enemy is. I give thee charge in the sight of God who quicketh all things before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. I give thee charge. That's a military. All through here, Paul is using military vocabulary, an order, a commandment. That thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the word here, the, the word appearing is epiphany. Christ knows his schedule. His, our task is simply to be faithful every day and abide in him. Which in, times past, which in his times he shall show who is blessed and only potentate the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor, power, everlasting. Amen. We don't have to fear life because God is the ruler of all. We don't have to fear death because he shares immortality with us. We've got both sides covered. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. See, one of the greatest dangers of wealth is that it can make us proud. And one then understands neither himself nor his wealth. We're not owners of anything. We're only stewards. That they do good that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may hold on eternal life. Trust God, not wealth. The pursuit of wealth is often the evidence of insecurity. Boy, isn't that true? And you can't take it with you as I point out by saying it up ahead. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings. Ah, and oppositions of science falsely so called. The word science here, it's, a, it's the technology we know by that name, but rather knowledge falsely so-called, pseudo-scholarship. Now, denotatively speaking, Paul was probably talking about the Gnostic cults that claimed some special spiritual knowledge. The Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. gnosis. Science falsely so-called. But boy, are we in a strange society. We are products of Western civilization which had a commitment for a thousand years to the pursuit of truth. And many of those great champions of what's called Western civilization would be shocked to discover that we live in a culture which makes truth outlawed in our schools. There's a concept in information sciences there's a thing called disorder and order, noise, signal, cacophony or music, chaos, cosmos. The opposite, these are all, each one's the opposite extreme of the other, randomness and design. These things on the left are randomness, call that, the technical term is entropy, randomness, chaos, disorder, no order. The stuff on the right is called information, order, whether it's signal and noise, order versus disorder, design versus randomness, and so forth. And the trend if you, if in life is for things that are ordered to drift to disorder, always. We, that, that's, the, that's one of the laws of entropy. Now, randomness, involved, when you study randomness in, in mathematics, there's two different kinds of processes, deterministic and stochastic. 
Deterministic processes, 2 plus 2 equals 4, always. Stochastic processes are statistical. You know, what is the, what is the height of the average man? Well, that's a statistic, right? This has a mean, a variance, whatever. They suddenly plunged into uh, places where randomness is a variable. And in, that, in the real world, scientific world, you have occasion to need a random number. It turns out, when you understand what randomness is, they are very difficult to find because all, the best you can do is get what they call a pseudo-random number. And it turns out that in 1955, the Rand Corporation, the granddaddy of all the big scientific think tanks, published a book called One Million Random Digits. And that book is, uh, may sound to a layman as a, a, that, that's how it's a, it's a book with random numbers. You open that book and it literally is a series of numbers that are random. You say, what on earth, why does it take a big think tank with supercomputers to publish a book like, of random numbers? You've got to be kidding. No. You have to, this, I bring this up to show you under, so you'll understand what randomness is. This is not as trivial as it sounds. They had supercomputers go through those numbers again and again and again and again to make sure that there was no symmetry, no predictability. Its, def it's defining characteristic is that total absence of design. Randomness and design are opposite as, as, as it is possible to be opposite. We live in a society in which our schools are prohibited from teaching the concept of intelligent design. Our teachers are inculcated and forced to teach the idea that the most elegant designs in the universe, designs that are so elegant we hardly even understand them, happen by accident, by randomness. That's why when I teach this thing, I wear this set of beads. And uh, these are a series of black and white beads. Now I'm going to tell you a story. I spilled these beads on my floor by accident. But when I picked them up, I made sure I didn't want that to happen again. So I just decided to put them on a piece of thread. So I picked them up randomly and put them on a piece of thread. And I, after I did this, there's 247 of them, for those of you interested. I think I've got some information on that. Yeah, here we are. There they are. This is a little test. You're going to get epistemological IQ out of this. Okay. Now, in this sequence here, as I picked them up, picked them up off the floor by, by just by chance, put them on the string. But then I looked at it more closely. There's two dots, dit, dit. And then there's a dash dot. That's N, I-N, right? Then there's a T, an H, and an E in Morse code. In the, there's a B, an E, a G, an I, another N. It spells... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I picked these up all by accident off the floor of my workshop. How many believe that? Why? How many of you think I'm putting you on? How many of you think I'm pulling your leg, right? Why do you think that? I'll tell you why you think that. Was this accidental? Or did I do this deliberately? I happen to be a radio ham, so it took me 15 minutes, all right? 347 beads here. An alphabet of two, black and white, right? So there's only two types, black and white. Any particular sequence is two raised to the 347th power. 
one chance in two to three. That turns out to be 2.8669 with 104 zeros after it. That's a very big number. This as a binary number represents, a binary number of 347 bits is a huge number. It's, it's a number that's, oh, can you visualize a number with 104 zeros after it? It's a big number. How big is it? Borel's law in physics says that any number that has more than 50 zeros is defined as absurd. Now there's a probability, a probability of one chance in 10 with 50 zeros. See, in mathematics, there's an occasion where you need to have a cutoff. And so they decided the most absurd, that's defined as absurd. Any probability that's more rare than one chance in 10 to the 50th is defined in physics as absurd. Well, this isn't 50, it's 104, okay? So for this to have happened by accident is not just unlikely, it is defined in physics as absurdly impossible. Well, let's take a different case. Let's not take an alphabet of two. Let's take your hemoglobin molecule. That happens to be a chain of 574 elements long, and it's not an alphabet of two, it's an alphabet of 20. Okay? That's a little different formula, a little more complicated. If I take a binary string of 347 elements with only two, it's two to the 10, 104 power. The hemoglobin molecule, 574 elements with an alphabet of 20, turns out to be 10 this, with 650 zeros after. Not 50, 650. Now you won't let me con you that this happened by accident. And yet you allow our teachers to tell our kids that the hemoglobin molecule happened by accident. It's so complex that we, don't, we only begin to understand all this. And by the way, in the hemoglobin, only one of those sequences is not fatal. The others are fatal. Hemoglobinopathy. Remember, Borel's law, 10 to the minus 50. There's only 10 to the 18th seconds in the history of the universe if you assume 60 billion years. There's only 10 to the 66th atoms in our entire galaxy. These are big numbers. We're not talking, you know, only 10 to the 8th particles in our galaxy. Anything greater than 10 to the minus 50, absurd. So the specificity of hemoglobin is far beyond any possibility of it having happened by chance. It's equivalent to winning the lottery. Most of you know state lottery, right? How much? Winning it every day for 90 days in a row. That's pretty unlikely. Huh? And the genetic code that lies inside is so complex, we're just beginning to get a glimmer to it. It has punctuation. It has an alphabet. It's been designed. It's designed to be error correcting. And on and on it goes. See, the school will teach you that matter plus energy plus randomness produces life. That's not true. Matter plus energy plus information makes life. You can't explain where information came. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which came first, the DNA or the protein? You can't have DNA without protein. You can't have protein without the DNA. Same idea, same idea. Anybody that's been in a design team knows that you have to, lot, if you've got different subgroups working on a design, they better be talking to each other. You can't have any randomness in the problem. Randomness is the enemy of intelligent design. Thoughts and language are not physical. Where did thoughts and language come from? They didn't happen randomly. Anyway, 
Timothy, uh, Paul finally wraps it up with his first letter, Timothy, which professing have erred concerning the faith. That's, you know, science falsely so-called. Grace be with thee. Amen. And this first to Timothy was written from Laodicea. This is an appendage on the King James Version manuscripts. The first to Timothy was written from Laodicea, which is the chiefest city of Phrygia, Pacatinia, and uh, so ends it. When he says, um, grace be with thee, the the pronoun is the second person plural. People miss this. What it really says, grace and peace with all of you. Paul had the entire church in mind when he wrote this letter. It wasn't just a private little note to Timothy. And uh, all the church had a responsibility here and obey it as well. And so do you and I today. This letter is written to us. And we want to take a special note of the first verse of chapter 4. The doctrines of demons and all of that stuff. Okay, for the next session, I want you to read 2 Timothy, the first two chapters. And with that, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Well, Father, we thank you for this precious letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to gain the lessons you have for us in this letter. And Father, we pray that the lessons not be wasted. We pray, Father, that we each might grow in grace and in knowledge, not in science falsely so-called, but rather in your truth, that we indeed, through the comfort of the Scriptures, might have our blessed hope. We thank you, Father, for Paul. We thank you for preserving these words to us in this day. We pray, Father, through your Holy Spirit, you will illuminate this to our own apprehension and understanding. As we commit ourselves without any reservations whatsoever into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Timothy. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.